that line, leaning on the everlasting arms. Any of us that grew up in church are familiar with that. But do you know what it means? How many times this week have you sought God's help, his comfort, his peace, perhaps his strength, his courage? That's pursuing a relationship that it isn't about after you die, can you get into heaven? It's about how do you live Monday to Friday? And is the presence of Christ reality for you? That's what we're seeking. We're seeking to know our Savior, be known by him. That's why we're pursuing the life of Jesus. Again, I urge you to uh, buy a book, have a book, give a book away. And join a group to discuss it. How's it going? You learning? But not just cognitive information. But when you really know Jesus as a person. And you can relate to him. Today's message is living water. My daughters always make fun of the way I say that word. I think I put D's in it or something. From, if you're from Georgia, water doesn't have a T. It has a D in it. But and an extra R. <laughs> That's right. Keep going. Yeah, you can find all kind of aberrations in my speech. But but the the theme for us is Jesus says in this passage, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now the context, and we're on in reading thirty three on page forty two. The context here, if you read. Um, 33 is where I'll focus, but 32 is the beginning. And in reading that, you see that Jesus left Judea and he traveled toward Galilee after John the Baptist's arrest. Now, we're going to see a map in just a second, but this passage says he had to travel through Samaria. Traveling through Samaria was the most direct route. Can y'all see that? You see, the Dead Sea is the body of water at the bottom. The Sea of Galilee, or the lake, it's a freshwater lake at the top. And then the Jordan River connects the two. So Jesus went through Samaria, which is there to the left, all the way, almost to the coast. And that was unusual. It was the most direct route. But Jews thought that Samaritans were unclean religiously. They were ritualistically defiled. And so Jews wanting to stay clean religiously would bypass Samaria. What they would do is they would actually cross the Jordan River somewhere above the Dead Sea and travel up the east side of the river all the way to Galilee And then they would cross again back over into Galilee because they didn't want to come into contact with anyone in Samaria. Now, who were these Samaritans and why were they so hated? Well, they were partly Jewish and partly Gentile. And because of that, they were despised and disdained by both Jews and Gentiles. We're Gentiles, which just means non-Jews. Some, there's some in here that are Jewish. Second Kings 17 describes the history that led to this conflict. The king of Assyria defeated Samaria in 722 BC. 
And what he did is he captured Israelites and he actually deported them back to Assyria. But he sent people from various nations into Assyria. But the people he sent in were idol worshipers. They were not worshipers of God whose name is Yahweh. They were idol worshipers to settle. Well, over time, these idol worshiping settlers from other nations intermarried with the Jews that still lived there. Their offspring were the Samaritans. Now, in time, the Samaritans largely abandoned their idols and they turned to worshiping Jehovah God or Yahweh. But they did it in their own way. In other words, they decided what scripture they would recognize. And they did recognize a form of the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Penta, penta means five. But that's all they accepted. And their version was different than the version that the Jews recognized. The Samaritans also built their own temple up on Mount Gerizim. They tried to offer to help build the temple in Jerusalem and they were rejected. So they, you know, that created more hostility. Now, Jesus didn't avoid Samaria. The scripture says, you see in this passage, he had to go to travel through Samaria. Why? Because God had a purpose. God had a plan for him there. And Jesus came to earth to do his father's will. But he also rejected this idea of external defilement. So we begin at John chapter 4 and reading 33. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, which shows his full humanity, sat down at the well. And it was six in the evening. Now, some of you that are carrying other versions today or reading on your phone, it may say it was noon. It, literally, it says the sixth hour. But there's some debate about whether John viewed time differently and wrote about time differently. There were a couple of different ways of figuring of the time of day. So that's why this translation and about this split. Some translations say it was noon. Others say it was um, six in the evening. According to tradition, this well was actually a half mile out of town, south of Sychar. Now, if it were noon, and to some degree it applies to six in the evening as well, but less so. If it were noon, instead of in the morning or the evening when women typically went to the well, it indicates this woman wanted to be alone. Now, we want to look at Jesus' conversation with this particular woman at the well. And first we'll see that there was a startling request. So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. 
for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. That's curious, isn't it? This is the guy who can make food. But what you'll see, look closely, when he performed miracles and for whom? He didn't perform them for himself. So he, they went to buy food. Now here's her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, you're at the well watching. How did she say it? How'd she say it? You think she was shy? No, well, how'd she say it? She was shocked. Yeah, anything else? I think she was shocked. Anything else? I got to get y'all stirred up. Y'all need to start coming in here at 8 o'clock. We pray at 8.15. It'll get all your neurons firing, see? Irritated. There you, you know something about this, Lloyd, right? I, I think he's right. See, y'all quit, we all quit spiritualizing this Bible. The reason it's hard for you to understand it is because you got this little sissy Jesus and he's just floating around blowing kisses. And, and you're having a hard time entering the story. And so it gets so distant from your life, it seems to have no connection. This is a human woman with human emotions responding to a fully human and also fully divine man who was a Jew. And she was a Samaritan. But you're right. Jesus' request would have shocked her. And I use the word there, startling. But I think she was irritated too. Now you can differ from me again. Because not only did Jews not speak to Samaritans, men didn't speak to women, even their wives in public. And religious men certainly didn't speak to women who were notorious, as we'll see this one was. And it was even more astonishing, not only that he spoke to her, but he asked for a drink from her jar. But Jesus knew you couldn't be defiled by water from a jar. Even a jar touched by a Samaritan woman. Matthew 15, 10 through 20. You'll read it later. It's in reading 89. But you'll see it's not what you put into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out that defiles you. But Jesus, was, Jesus knew he could not be defiled by the water or the woman. How do you view yourself? Do you think that you have made too many stakes, mistakes, committed too many sins to be touched by Jesus? To be loved by God? Some of you come to church, but you, you keep God and even faith at a distance. You do want passage into heaven. You're but you don't want to immerse yourself in living in pursuit of Christ. You haven't committed too many sins. You haven't made too many mistakes. This conversation also included a surprising response 
Now see, Jesus completely ignored the Samaritan woman's response. That's what you'll see. He, he, she had a response to his request for water. He ignored it. And he took the conversation in a completely different direction. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now here's her response. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. You think she said it like that? How do you think she said it? How would you have said it? When he comes home and he, you know, you've been working all day and he says, you have anything to eat? How do you tell him what there is to eat? Huh? You better find something. That's right. See, I want y'all to understand this. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. And this well is deep. In fact, it's over 100 feet deep now. It would have been much deeper then. So where are you going to get this living water? Now, understand, living water had a double meaning. Living water meant fresh water that, was, that came from a stream or a uh, brook, a spring. And it was considered to be more pure than water that was collected in a cistern. So she thinks he's insulting the water as well. He's asked for a drink. He has no bucket and he's insulting the source of it. And she says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself. So in other words, so who are you? As did his sons and his livestock. But I think you would say, so who are you to complain, Mr. I'm thirsty? You think I'm wrong about this? I think she's offended. And re, but you can't forget there's this hostility automatically between Jews and Gentiles. And furthermore, Jesus is speaking now as if this woman is the thirsty one instead of him. Do you get that? He says, can I have a drink? And then, she, then he says, and if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. She thought Jesus was criticizing the stream. She asserted that the well came from the great patriarch Jacob. And he was the one from whom they descended. So see, again, he, she's sticking him because the Jews disputed the lineage. This, this, this conversation is fraught with conflict and hostility. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. And then the, water, the woman responded, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come back here and draw water again. She took what he's saying literally, or if she is, or maybe he's being facetious and she's just taking him at his word. 
but she certainly misunderstood any spiritual intent. But she said, okay, well, I'll be glad not to have to carry this heavy jug out of town to get this water. Water's very heavy. You know that, don't you? And lug it back and forth every day. Of course, the living water that Jesus was referring to was what? What? Eternal life, salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the, the, the spirit of God inhabiting so that there was a, a, a desire and an ability to live a God-pleasing life. Here's a verse that gives us insight. John 7. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. That the spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So this stream of living water that, that, that fills your thirst was not only salvation, but it was a filling of the spirit. Why was this woman so confused? She couldn't receive spiritual things. Well, that's the right answer. Yeah, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But the unbeliever doesn't welcome what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand it since it's evaluated, evaluated spiritually. See, if you know spiritual truth, I'm not saying cognitively, but in a way that's encompassing of you, it has to be revealed to you by the Spirit when you're born again. So what about you? Do you discern spiritual realities? Not only about yourself, but also about God. Do you have a, dis a spiritual discernment? That's by revelation. It's by the Holy Spirit. The conversation also included a sensitive rebuke. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. Now, you've read the story already, right? You say, well, I don't know what to read. I'm confused. Well, read what it says on the book, Mark. And then take the, the message guide and it'll tell you every week what to read day by day and what to read for next Sunday. So you'll come in here prepared. But here, she's defensive at this point. And so she's trying to deflect this conversation. And she answers him. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband. Now she said, I, he's, he says, you, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So, so she's, she's living with a man, and obviously that's not marriage according to Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus says about marriage, that's Matthew 19, 5 and 6. So he's pointing it out. Look at her response. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. What's she trying to do? 
Does she understand? Is she trying to shut him down? What's happening here? So you've got to get in the story. It's interesting. Jesus didn't scold her, did he? And he didn't humiliate her. But he did expose her sin. Which revealed her need of repentance and forgiveness. You know, we're hesitant to point out sin, aren't we? But we rob people of the chance to have spiritual awareness when we refuse to do so. God determines what's right and what's wrong. But sometimes we're called to communicate it. But we are so scared of offending. Offense is in the manner. Offense is in the manner of delivery. And the purpose for it. But I don't believe Jesus scold or shamed this woman. But he certainly exposed her need of repentance. Her need for forgiveness. You see, salvation doesn't happen apart from a recognition of sin. If you're saved, it comes as part of the same spirituality that reveals your need of salvation. And Jesus didn't come here to forgive any of our sins and then leave us to continue in them. He changed our nature as well. Now this woman affirmed that what Jesus said was true, which which appears to be a confession, at least somewhat a confession. And a verse for us, 1 John 1, 9, is if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous or just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the question. Has Jesus showed you yourself? Not only initially, but also in an ongoing way that convicts us of sin. Do you have that experience where the Spirit reveals to you What needs to change? Does that happen? Because he does it initially, but he also does it continually as he's reforming us, reshaping us. Well, what has God showed you that needs to change? The Spirit may be telling you, speaking to you right now, showing you something this needs to change. It's interesting, isn't it, how we have these blind spots, don't we? And, and God in his graciousness doesn't show us everything. He shows us initially our sin, which drives us to repentance. But then he shows us one bit at a time to reform us, to refashion us, to remake us. This conversation included spiritual revelation. The woman at the well raised another point of dissension. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now if you look at, there's a great note down below. The woman spoke our fathers worship in the past tense when she said our fathers worship on this mountain. Pointing to the nearby Mount Gerizim with its empty summit. The Samaritan temple on this mountain had been destroyed 
more than 100 years before. So they built the temple, but it had been destroyed. You know who destroyed it? The Jews. So even more hostility between the two of these. But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. See, Jews built the temple based on 2 Chronicles 6.6, but the Samaritans didn't have that in their Bible. And they didn't even accept it as biblical, as scriptural. So you see how combative these two appear to be. I don't think Jesus was, was angered, but he just kept saying something that cut through, that cut to the heart of the matter. But again, instead of answering, Jesus redirected this conversation. Verse 21. Then Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, in fact, the temple on Gerizim had been destroyed by the Jews, but the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 A.D., And there would be thousands of Jews and Samaritans who would be slaughtered by Romans. But even more importantly, the new covenant was coming and all the rituals and ceremonies, whether Jewish or Samaritan, would be obsolete. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. See, God's revelation of salvation came to the Jews. The law was given to the Jews. The prophets spoke of the Messiah. And then the Messiah himself came as a Jew. You can read Romans 3, 1 and 2. Also Romans 9, 3 through 5. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, this spirit doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. It means the human spirit. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, our worship is not by what we do. True worship is from the spirit within, from the mind, the heart. It's internal. It's not external conformity to ceremonies or rituals. And truth requires that worship be consistent with what the scripture teaches. That it be centered on the way, the truth, and the life on Jesus. So true worship has to be centered on Christ, has to be according to the word, and it has to be an internal Emotional, mental, spiritual expression. Do you worship in spirit and truth? What's going on within you? See, neither the worship of the Samaritans or the Jews could be characterized as worship in spirit or truth. Both focused on external actions Obeying laws, rules, and regulations, observing rituals, offering sacrifices. And none of those are spirit or truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Again, I think she's trying to divert the conversation. She's all over the place, isn't she? Who is the Christ? 
And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. In other words, okay, we disagree with this and we're not going to settle this. So one day Messiah will come and he'll give us the answers. She keeps trying to shut this conversation down, doesn't she? And he persists. He persists. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. The word he, the pronoun, is not actually in the original. In the Greek, it says, Jesus said, I am the one speaking to you. And she understood when he said, I am, he was saying, I'm God. Remember the name that God gave to Moses, identifying himself? I am. And there are 23 times in the New Testament that Jesus refers to himself with the words, I am. So it's not, it's not just we're talking about a pronoun and a verb. We're talking about a name, the name of God. It's equal to Yahweh. Now, it's interesting that Jesus told this woman, I am, essentially, I am God. I am the Messiah. He didn't tell Jews that. You know why he didn't tell Jews that? Because Jews wanted a Messiah they could use to fight the Romans. Jews wanted a politician. Jews wanted a general. Jews wanted a, a king with a sword. Jews didn't want someone to rule over their lives. Samaritans didn't have all those preconceptions. So he spoke to her directly. But you know when we're saved, Christ speaks to our, to us directly and identifies himself. Do you remember that time? Has Jesus spoken to you and said, I am? Has he revealed himself directly to you? That's what happens when you're born again. Now this conversation included also a salvation result. Just then, his disciples arrived, and they were amazed he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? They didn't want to rebuke him, but they didn't much like it. Now, what happened to this woman at the well? I mean, it, it looks to me like there's kind of an argument going on. Am, am, I, am I reading that into it just because I have an argumentative nature, or what? Do y'all think it's there? Well, was she born again? Was she saved? Was she regenerated? Or did the conversation just end? What do you think? When salvation occurs, do you think there's ever evidence? Do you? Y'all speak up. Is there? Do you think salvation ever occurs without evidence? No, salvation cannot occur without being followed by evidence because the change is so massive, it's total, it's transformation. Here's where we see the change. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town. Wonder why she left it? Did she leave it because she was excited and forgot it? Did she leave it because she wanted him to have a drink? I don't know, but see, notice those little facts because those little facts attest to the truth of the story. All these little details that you see mentioned. 
Then she went into town and told the men, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. What would have happened to the men in the town? She's had five husbands. She's got her sixth man at home. She didn't find those men real easily. Are y'all tracking with me here? This wasn't a big town. This was a small village. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's interesting here that she asks. You notice this. She doesn't say, this man is the Messiah. Why? Well, culturally, women didn't lecture men. You can see at the bottom, her question in Greek could be translated, surely this man can't be the Messiah, can he? It's even less direct than the translation. She's, she's letting them decide. So one, culturally, women didn't instruct men. But two, you don't talk anybody into salvation. You tell your story. And they have to come to faith. I wish we could, com- I wish we could cause people to believe. It makes some of us with children rest a lot easier wouldn't it we can't but we can tell the story why was she convinced was she convinced because Jesus knew about all these husbands and these men you think so you think that if there's a woman living in possum kingdom who's going on her sixth man would everybody know? Would everybody know in Malden? Would everybody know in Simpsonville? So why couldn't they just have told her? She doesn't know who this man is. Everybody in town gossiped about this woman, don't you think? I mean, let's be honest. The neighborhood you live in, if there's a woman who's had five husbands, would you all know it? Y'all quit acting spiritual. I'm going to just have to quit in here. Everybody knows it. She's notorious. She's been labeled by everybody in town. Adulterous. Immoral. You don't know how many besides the husband she had. Everybody knew it. So his information at least to me, isn't convincing. You know, you know, if you, you, somebody's saying something bad about you, somebody says, well, I heard this. You just say, everybody knows that. Everybody said that about me. You're not telling me anything new. Mm-mm. Here's what was different. She was different. A woman that's been through five husbands usually wouldn't be very positive on men. Is that fair? Mm-mm. She would not be. But she went back to tell the men in the town about this man who told her everything she ever did. 
She wanted to tell these people who probably mistreated her. She had to go to the well when nobody else was there because the women shunned her, the women shamed her, the men ridiculed her, the men laughed behind her back, then took advantage of her sexually. And she went to tell them that this might be the Messiah out here at the well. Jesus revealed his identity to her. She was changed. See, that's salvation. Salvation is when God reveals who he is to you. And it happens in a personal, intimate experience. Everybody knew about this woman. This man, knowing her, the facts about her, the sordid facts about her life, that was nothing. But when he said, I am. Has he ever said that to you? Do you remember the day when he said to you, Beth, you remember that day? I am. Was there any denying it? When he speaks to you, directly and tells you his identity you are born again and that truth is burnt all the way through you that experience becomes undeniable he talks I'm going to skip he talks about the harvest and looking at the harvest I'll come back to there But I want you to jump down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. See she told her story. And the power of her story led others to believe. Not because of the logic of it. Not because they were so convinced. Why would they listen to a woman who'd had so many husbands? She was changed. They could see it in her eyes. But when she spoke and told her story, guess what? The Spirit birthed them. The power's in your story. The power's in your story. Empowered by the Spirit. He told me everything I ever did, which involves some of you. She didn't say that part, but they heard it, didn't they? I need to find out who this guy is. Maybe for embarrassment, maybe for shame, but maybe that same spirit was piercing them and goes, you exploited this woman. You shamed this woman. You gossiped about this woman. And now she's acting gracious to you. What is happening here? What is happening? Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Not of the Jews alone, of the Jews 
and the Gentiles and the Samaritans. See, the evidence of this Samaritan's woman's salvation was her desire to reach others for Christ. Even others who had maligned her, criticized her, rejected her, mistreated her. Who are you reaching? Who are you reaching? Who are you reaching? Who are you reaching? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. And this passage in Romans 10, the verses above, say, how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless he or she is sent? I'm telling you, you're being sent. Who are you praying for? Who are you telling your story to? I don't want to embarrass you, but I'll ask you rhetorically, but in your mind it won't be rhetorical. When's the last time you told someone your story? When's the last time you prayed for someone, especially someone who's hateful to you? That's what this story means. Anybody doubt in here people need to be saved? Even in this room, people need to be saved. But certainly this community. Well, you know how they're going to be saved? Your word. Who are you praying for? Who are you talking to? Who are you even inviting to church? Not, don't try to talk people out of churches, people that are, that are happy and satisfied in their churches. Our community is full of people who don't know God. You see what I'm saying? Moving people from church to church, that's, that's not, there's no real benefit in that. But why don't you find someone that needs to know Christ? And it might be your story that's the way they hear. Would you like to be part of that? Matthew 9, 37 says this. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. You think the harvest is abundant in Simpsonville? In Greenville? In Malden? Look at our culture. Our culture is melting down. And no president of either party is going to fix the culture. We're the ones who are supposed to be the salt and light in this culture. The harvest is abundant. But the workers who can gather it or will gather it are very few. Are you spending your time minding your own business? Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. But what this means also, specifically, because he was speaking to disciples who had already been sent out. But for us, it means, God, will you send me? Who wants to be a harvester? I'd like to see hands. Who wants to be a harvester? Will you pray and ask God to show you someone 
that you can tell your story to. Will you do that? Who will do that? Who will pray? Just pray. I'm just asking you to pray. And then when God says this one, will you look for the chance to tell your story? Tell it humbly like this woman did. This isn't the Messiah, is it? And let the Spirit convince, convict, convert. You just tell your story. There may be some of you this morning say, well, you know, this is news to me. There'll be counselors here and in the care connection room that would love to pray with you. They're always here also to anoint you with oil. If you have um, an illness and you want to be healed, we've seen some healings. Not everyone, but some, some miraculous healings. So people will be here and they'll stay here as long as you want. Father, teach us how to talk to people who disbelieve. Humbly, gently. But then, Lord, send your spirit to convince, to convict, to convert. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming.